This is an ABC podcast. Hello from David Rutledge. Welcome to The Philosopher's Zone on RN. This week we're getting feminist, environmentalist and existentialist. Nous pensons, et ça c'est une, euh, un des points les plus importants de l'existentialisme, que l'homme est finalement la raison d'être de l'homme, son avenir et euh, la fin même de toutes ses, de toutes ses activités. French philosopher Simone de Beauvoir, in a 1959 interview where she's discussing the existentialist conception of human beings. She says, We think that the human is ultimately the reason for being human, its own future, the very aim of all activities. What directs us is concern for others and also concern for one's own happiness. Well, at first glance, this humanity for humanity's sake perspective sounds like a closed system and it raises some troubling questions. Here's one of them. What can existentialism say to us today? Does it remain relevant in a time when we're not so much concerned with distinguishing the human from other animals, but rather to really understand the situatedness of the human being on the earth, in the biosphere, in the ecological community? And wouldn't existentialism, in light of that, be actually a problematic perspective? Dahlia Nasser. She's this week's guest and a senior lecturer in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Sydney. And we're going to be getting into some of these issues around the usefulness of de Beauvoir's work, as well as that of Jean-Paul Sartre, in addressing 21st century problems. But first, a little background. Dahlia Nasser is speaking with Hong Jiang. Existentialism is considered a philosophical movement insofar as it is inspired by a specific methodology, which I would say is phenomenological. And that means that it is concrete or it tries to be extremely concrete in contrast to the usual way by which philosophy is done, that is to say, in highly abstract ways. So existentialism, first of all, is distinctive in its emphasis on the lived experience. This is something that Simone de Beauvoir, as well as Franz Fanon, both emphasize in their work, that they want to describe what it is to be a woman, to look at, this is in the case of Beauvoir, to look at the situation, the concrete lived experience of women in various situations. And the same holds for Fanon, who is looking at the lived experience of the black person, of the colonized. And so uh, both of them are looking at situations, at specific situations, and at the way in which human individuals are being shaped and formed by these situations. And this is a quite a distinctive methodology that comes out of phenomenology, which is in contrast to the usual way that philosophy is done, highly descriptive and wants to look at the nuances, the specifics of everydayness or uh, the everyday lived experience. Existentialism is maybe best portrayed through literature, right? You can better learn about someone's very specific, concrete individual experience by reading a novel or by looking at a film and learning, you know, about that concrete individual in that way. And so it, it lends itself to literature and filmmaking in a very natural way. And that's why there's so much existentialist literature. That's why there's so much existentialist film. And that's why the existentialists themselves wrote a lot of novels as well and plays. A lot of existentialists were concerned with the idea of freedom. But what was freedom yes. according to Sartre? 
<laughs> That's a really difficult question, but it's a good one, of course. So Saad says that what distinguishes the human being from other natural beings is this dual characteristic. On the one hand, we are part of the natural world uh, insofar as we have bodies, we have organs that are unconscious or that are operating in a way that is unconscious to us. But on the other hand, we have these very conscious experiences. We're aware of ourselves and this duality he describes as on the one hand being an in itself, which is to say a conscious, un unconscious natural being and a being that is for itself, that is aware of itself as having questions and as wanting to know what it is here for, as trying to understand the meaning of its life and uh, examine the values by which it lives. So this duality is distinctive, according to Sartre, of a human uh, situation, of what it means to be human. Now, the fact that we have this other aspect of ourselves, that we're not just unconscious, but we're also conscious, means that we are not simply determined by our biology or by our specific situation here and now, by our uh, culture, by our uh, geography, and so on, in the way that he would say other natural beings are. The fact that we can sort of distance ourselves from that, that we have this other aspect through which we become conscious of ourselves, through we, which we examine ourselves, that aspect, which she calls the for itself, means that we are more than just an in itself, means that we are more than just an unconscious or a natural being. And this more, this ability to extract oneself out of oneself, to move beyond the merely natural or organic way of being, is what he describes as freedom. And he is picking up on something that Heidegger had described in Being in Time, in which he published in 1927, which he describes as the ecstatic character of the human being. That is to say that we can be always more than what we are now. So how far does Sartre take these ideas of transcending biology? To a certain extent, Sartre is not really concerned with the biological. I think Simone de Beauvoir pays a lot more attention to that aspect of the human than he does. And in, in that way, she differs from him. Sartre is more interested, especially later in his life, with the social political situatedness of the human. The fact that, of course, although we are free, we can always transcend our specific situation. We're also necessarily situated. And this situation he describes or he the emphasis that he places is not so much on the biological situatedness, but on the social and political. And for Beauvoir, I think, she expands these considerations to look at the biological as well. So in addition to looking at the situation of women in specific cultural historical contexts, she also wants to take into account the fact that women are women insofar as they are biological. And so she doesn't ignore that aspect, but also emphasizes that women are more than just their biology. And for instance, she says in The Second Sex, if it were the case that women were merely their biology, then all women should be determined according to what their biology can uh, allow them to achieve, namely motherhood. But that's definitely not something that we would agree to, that all women should become mothers or that motherhood is something that is merely biological. Rather, and I think Simone de Beauvoir convincingly shows, motherhood is a moral choice because you're making a commitment to another person. You're committing yourself to looking after someone. And this moral choice cannot be a merely natural choice. And so she wants to show that, yes, women have a certain biology, and this biology has led to uh, 
there being an other to the man, there being uh, inferior, considered to be inferior and capable and so on in various ways. But this is a misconception or a misconstrual of what it really means to be a human being, what it means to be a woman in general. And she shows this in various ways, but I think poignantly by her description of motherhood as being a moral commitment rather than a merely natural one. So what's the main difference between Sartre and Beauvoir? What Beauvoir does is recognize that the situation that women experience are in is a very distinctive kind of situation. And this is something that Sartre doesn't pay as much attention to. And what do I mean by this? So both Sartre and Beauvoir are working with this uh, notion that they get from Hegel that what the self is or what makes us into selves is always in relation with an other. So there's always this dialectic or there's always this relationality that is at the heart of uh, selfhood. So I become a self when someone else recognizes me as a self. Now, for Beauvoir, when she takes up this idea of self and other in her analysis of woman, what she notes is that the woman is always the other to the man. And what does that mean? It means that men or, you know, the masculine has dictated what it means to be human, has determined the nature of humanity, the nature of selfhood. And on that basis, determined that women, which are not men, are therefore less human or not fully human, not human in the same way to some extent. And so this has made them into others. Now, there's a very distinctive relationship here between woman as other and man as the self that you wouldn't find in any other situation. Because we could say that there are self-other relationships throughout society. One of these would be between the bourgeois and the proletariat. We also see that in Franz Fanon's analysis of what it means to be colonized and black. What it means to be human is the white, the colonizer, whereas the black or the colonized is the other. But what Beauvoir distinguishes or what she recognizes is that there's a specific situation for women that is unlike that of the workers organizing themselves against the bourgeois, and it is unlike the colonized organizing themselves against the colonizer. And what is that distinction? Well, first of all, women as others are spread throughout society. This means that it's very hard for them to be organized, right? There are women who are bourgeois and there are women who are proletariat. There are women who are black and there are women who are white, right? There are women of various cultural and ethnic backgrounds. And so unlike colonized or black people, and again, unlike the proletariat, they can't organize themselves in the same way. Similarly, when they are in a situation of oppression, if they are black or if they are colonized or if they are proletariat, they're more likely to be organizing with the men, right? So if they're black women, they're going to stand up with the black men. And so their situation is a much more ambiguous one. And so in order for them to gain uh, equality, in order for them to uh, become recognized and not merely distinguished as other to men, they have a lot more work to do than, according to Beauvoir, than um, men who are oppressed. And so I think this is a really distinctive analysis that you don't get in any other existentialist account of oppression or of self-other relationship. De Beauvoir, she was a really massive or prominent figure in second wave feminism. 
Could you tell me more about her influence on that? The Second Sex, which is her most well-known book, was published in France in 1949, and it was translated into English in 1953. Now, this is quite a quick turnaround because it was translated into English three years before Sartre's Being and Nothingness was translated into English and a full nine years before Heidegger's Being in Time. And it went through so many editions, and it in fact had its most um, significant public in Britain and the United States or in Anglophone countries in general. So I think the fact that it was translated so quickly and that it had so many editions in the years, and there's now a second, a new translation, um, is just the first indication of its influence. I think another thing that Beauvoir influenced is emphasizing that women are not merely biological. Or what makes us women is not our biology. She has a very long chapter in The Second Sex where she goes through the notion that women should be understood in terms of their biology and criticizes this biologicism. And this became really a fundamental or a turning point in feminism in the years to come. So the whole idea, you could say, of distinguishing sex from gender, of saying there's this biological sex, but it's not what gender is, can be traced back to Beauvoir's critique of the biologization of women or of, of seeing women as nothing but their biology. So how does she do that? It's because she's doing a phenomenological existentialist analysis of women, which is to say that she's claiming with Sartre that what women are is more than their in itself or who women are is more than what they are given, right? Because women are always like men like all human beings, right? Women are always able to transcend the situation in which they find themselves. So they're always more than their biology. They're always more than their culture, their history, and so on. And this is a huge conceptual turn. This allowed so many people to start thinking more concretely, not merely about you know, the biology of women, but what it means to be a woman here and now in this very specific situation. And taking, you know, looking at this, the different ways in which women exist. So rather than saying all women are alike because of their biology, Beauvoir says, no, 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 not all women are alike because of their biology. Women are alike insofar as they have to have the same experiences. They have to be subjugated. They have to be oppressed and, and so on. And so this in turn also allows us to think more concretely about how in different cultures women are treated differently. And this gives us tools by which to distinguish um, the oppression of women in various cultures. Not all are treated or subjected in the same way. This is The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and our guest this week is Dahlia Nasser from the University of Sydney. She's talking with Hong Jiang about existentialism, a mid-20th century movement that faces some unique 21st century challenges. Well, 
Well, as we've heard, Simone de Beauvoir's classic text The Second Sex had a huge influence on what's often called second-wave feminism, an era stretching roughly from the early 1960s to the late 1980s, when feminists broadened their attention from basic legal questions of voting and property rights to, well, more or less everything. Sexuality, family, the workplace, abortion and contraception, domestic violence and so on. But that was then, and we're now into the era of fourth-wave feminism, where technology, in particular social media, is influencing the ways in which women communicate and collaborate and mobilise. It's hard to imagine the Me Too movement having the impact and speed of development that it's had without smartphones and the internet. So, all that being the case, how relevant is a figure like Simone de Beauvoir today? And more broadly, in an era where the environment is front and centre of most people's attention, how useful is existentialism's focus on human subjectivity? Well, I think the methodology that Beauvoir uses remains relevant. Like I was saying, she's using phenomenology or what you would call a phenomenological analysis. That is to say, looking at the concrete lived situation of women. And so if we apply that to contemporary situations, to looking at the way in which women continue to be violated today and really looking at what is involved in that, hearing the stories of these women and trying to provide a full picture of uh, that experience. And that is exactly what Beauvoir is doing in her various depictions of different situations of women in the second sex. So she, for instance, has a chapter on the woman in love. She has a chapter on the mother. Uh, She has a chapter on the independent woman. So she gives very, very rich analyses that are extremely concrete and descriptive of various ways in which women live in the world and in which they express themselves, in which they are alienated from themselves, in which they find themselves in subjected situations. And I think this methodology is remains very relevant uh, today to describe, to look at the nuances, to look at the real concrete situation and to offer a full account so that others can read that and understand, oh, this is what it means to be raped or violated, right? It's this rich description that allows us to enter into that other person's lived experience and understand it in a way that we simply wouldn't be able to if we're talking abstractly or if we're just looking at statistics. Existentialism has a strong focus on the self and the human condition, but does it have anything to say on the relationship with humans and the environment? Yes, that's a really, really interesting question. So existentialism has been completely out of the conversation when it comes to environmentalism. And that's because existentialism is focused on the human being. And as I was saying at the very beginning, it has to do with the way in which Sartre distinguishes the human being from other natural beings and says that we are free in a way that other natural beings are not. And so there's an emphasis on human humans and therefore existentialism has been called a form of humanism. In fact, Sartre himself says existentialism is a humanism. Therefore, the question is, well, what is what can existentialism say to us today? Does it remain relevant in a time when we're not so much concerned with distinguishing the human from other natural beings from other animals, but rather to really understand the situatedness of the human being on the earth, in the biosphere, in the ecological community, and wouldn't existentialism in light of that be actually a problematic perspective? So I agree 
with a lot of the critiques and a lot of the worries about existentialism um, from a contemporary environmentalist perspective. But I also think that there is a place for existentialism within environmentalism. And this is why. So in the 1998 issue of the journal Environmental Ethics, the founding editor of that journal, Eugene Hargrove, wrote in a kind of um, introduction to that issue, lamenting the fact that philosophy and specifically environmental philosophy, environmental ethics doesn't seem to have any influence on policy, nor does it seem to have any influence on human behavior or human action. And the question is, well, what's the problem? Why hasn't philosophical speculation about norms, about values, not led to any clear or immediate change in policy and human behavior and human action? And this is an important question that we're still facing today when it comes to uh, environmental ethics. Scientists are constantly spewing numbers and showing us data that, you know, climate change is a problem. We're causing it. Yet, no one is taking responsibility. No one is doing anything about it. And so I think here is where I see a place for existentialism. The emphasis on one's responsibility. The fact that who I am and what I do is up to me. Although I am, of course, thrown into this particular historical cultural situation. I am determined by the language that I speak and so on. I still have the capacity to transcend all of that and to make myself into something, to choose uh, values for myself. And this emphasis on freedom, on this emphasis on choice, on the need to commit and be responsible, I think is an extremely important uh, emphasis that we need more of in the contemporary debates on environmentalism. Because what I see lacking there is an emphasis on moral responsibility of us as human individuals. We talk so much about rights and values, the rights of nature, the inherent values of koalas or biodiversity or so on. But we never look at ourselves and say, well, what is our obligation? What is our responsibility to all of this? And so if we turn inward a little bit in the way that existentialists are demanding and say, well, each of us is actually morally responsible for what is going on, then I think there's a place, an interesting and important place for existentialism. Now, there's another way in which I think existentialism is relevant, a very closely related way. And that has to do with the fact that in environmental discourse, there is a widespread sense of doom and gloom. Um, we basically are already imagining the end of the planet and we're very apocalyptic in the way in which we think this is going, you know, the end is near or it's going to be there in 100, 200, 300 years, whatever, 1,000 years. And we often describe this or express this apocalyptic sense when we say our grandchildren will uh, not understand us or our grandchildren will always hold us responsible for this, right? So we're already predicting a doomy, gloomy end and we are therefore, by doing that, saying we're not going to do anything. We're already determining the present and saying I'm not going to change anything because in 100, 200 years people are going to look back and say these people were crazy. But in having this apocalyptic doom-gloom scenario, we are once again making ourselves free of responsibility and choosing to ignore the present and allowing ourselves to be over-determined. 
not let not recognizing that we as moral individuals as have a responsibility to the present and to the future and so i think this apocalyptic uh character that is uh underpinning or um pervading in environmental discourse needs to be transformed and existentialism can definitely transform that so that instead of looking into the future and saying well it's it's over and therefore i can't be responsible because it's already been determined again existentialism would say the future is not determined and that's uh, because we're always inventing ourselves we're always transcending ourselves who we are is more than what we are or what we are now and so there's always this openness to the future that you find in existentialism that i think would be an extremely helpful anid- antidote to this uh current apocalyptic way of thinking yeah it seems like an existentialist could definitely take personal responsibility over the environment or their choices that influence the environment but how would they go about convincing other people like it still seems like it's quite centered on the self and personal responsibility great question again um so i think it's going to have to be my answer to this and i think what some of these existentialists would say is that it's going to have to be via phenomenological concrete descriptions and through art and literature in general so again i was saying that there's a very strong natural connection between uh, existentialism phenomenology on the one hand and literature and film and and you know storytelling in general on the other hand and that's because phenomenology is highly descriptive and focused on the concrete situation wants to show you what it is like to be here and now and so one way by which we can connect to others and move beyond this very self-centered individual centered aspect of existentialism is by portraying um, through literature or through very good phenomenological description uh, what it is like to live in a world like I'm just thinking of the people who are really under stress because of climate change right you so we could tell their stories and allow others through the storytelling to learn to understand that this is a very real thing and my acts are responsible for the kinds of lives that they're currently leading and so we need to tell stories and this is done through phenomenological description or through literature or through music but i think that through storytelling we can connect to others and move others inspire others to take on responsibility. So one of the things that Sartre always emphasized was that it's through literature that I connect with the reader or with the other. And so I write something and the reader is then responsible to take that thought up for her or himself and do something with it. So in the same way I would say that someone can write a story or describe a situation in which you know real devastating climate change anthropogenic effects are causing devastation and through that way connect with others and allow them to become morally responsible provide them with that situation with that context in which they have to say for themselves i am actually participating in this i am complicit here and so i think literature art and phenomenological description can definitely move us beyond the individual focus and allow us to connect to others and move others to act as well. Dalia Nasser, senior lecturer in philosophy at the University of Sydney, speaking there with Hong Jiang and bringing us to the end of the philosopher's zone for another week. 
You can find us online via the RN website where you can leave us a comment or you can download us via the ABC Listen app or whatever podcast app you're using. You can be old school and listen to us on the radio. You can get really retro and record us on cassette and then make copies of that and hand them out to your friends. Uh, that's probably illegal, so don't do that. I'm David Rutledge. Our producer is Diane Dean. Thanks for your company this week and we will catch you next time. Bye for now. Thank you.